Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Trials with Maya Z, brought to you by TrialHub, a data intelligence platform that helps clinical research organizations and sponsors plan clinical trials. This podcast is about how we can make clinical trials more successful and patient-friendly. I am your host, Maya Z, and in every episode, I will be interviewing a leading expert from various industries in order to discuss some of the major challenges and brainstorm how we can solve them. Let's get started. Hello, hello. It's Maya Z again, and I'm here with Dan Svera. Everyone knows who Dan Svera is, I guess. I was joking just before we started the recording that um, his videos are a part of our onboarding plan for people who don't know anything about clinical research. So... Yes, here you go, the star dance Fera. Thank you so much for making the time and, and coming here today. I won't say anything about you because there is so much to say about you. But yes, let's say that I'm also one of your fans. So Dan, just briefly, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Dan Sfera. I'm a fan of yours as well. I love seeing my fellow Europeans. You know, I'm, I'm European born in Europe, um, U.S. immigrant from three years old. Side owner, lucky, fortunate enough to be a side owner from a very young age. And never, I've done a lot in between CRA training. I still do training of people to be CRA CRCs, but I'm a side owner still. Uh, and I may complain a lot because that's what gets views, but I'm very grateful about what I do. That that's very important because if you don't love mm -hmm. what you do, then you're definitely in the wrong room. Like definitely, I'd be doing something so, else a long time. <laughs> yeah. So Dan, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you uh, to my podcast is uh, because you know I'm a huge. Um, I'd say my passion is how can we plan better clinical trials? What can we do to improve the process and then get better results? Uh, thanks to that. And uh, like I shared with uh, with you before. Um, I know that clinical research uh, associates are on the front end of running clinical trials and observing clinical trials progress, but I've never, never heard from, let's say, feasibility teams or even clinical operations to hear how they're involved in the clinical trial planning process. So are they involved in the clinical trial planning process? Uh, should they be involved or maybe they shouldn't? What do you think? Okay, so ideally, yes, they should be. Practically, I don't see how that's going to happen. The way they are burdened with so much work, they can't even handle their training on the protocol once it's up and then training the sites. Ideally, you would need them because in theory, they're supposed to be the connection, the direct connection to the sponsor, to the site. Um, the, the, that question should really include, like if you take that question further, should you include study coordinators into the conversation? Because at the end of the day, those are the two main workhorses for a study is the CRC and the CRA. And that dynamic is a very interesting dynamic. That's, that's what makes this trail successful. Now, 90% of the time, these two groups are just told what to do. That's it. We don't really care what you think. This is the study. Very smart people made this study, and you are to follow exactly as we have laid out and planned, or you will be retrained until you do, or you will be removed from the process. 
I mean, that's literally the like the way it is. So as somebody who works as a coordinator at the site level as recently as yesterday, and when we're done with this video later today, doing things, CRC tasks for the site, it's extremely important because the way these studies are becoming are unfeasible, not just for the coordinators, of course the CRAs, but the patients. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of reasons behind that. Regulations is the one you cannot argue. That's fine. But there are plenty of other reasons that are not regulations, but they're exploratory endpoints for sponsors. In order, in, Instead of investing in another trial, they try to mash everything together into one study. So if they have a drug and the drug works for, oh, I don't know, let's say arthritis, but they think, okay, maybe, maybe this drug also can work on the hormonal, the, the PAG axis. Okay, well, I'm not going to get in detail, but PAG axis as well. So we'll plan this protocol. Of course, it's going to be for arthritis. Like we're going to have all the endpoints. That's fine. But we're also going to throw in certain things that are not necessary for arthritis. But we're going to throw in these other exploratory endpoints. And we'll just make the site do it. They already have to draw blood. So let's just throw in like four more tubes and add a specialty lab. So they, they're sending the tubes also to a, the central lab. But while we're at it, it's just the coordinator. They're not important. Let's, send, let's have them also send to this lab internationally, where each time they do it, they have to fill out a customs form and they have to put dry ice. And then if the results come back bad or below a certain threshold, they have to draw another lab, and then they do other things that have nothing to do at this point where the arthritis. Do you think that the CRA would know that? And honestly, I haven't worked with CRA, CRA so closely. But with the CRA, the CRA doesn't care, okay? So maybe we need to work um, closer with the coordinators, though, because they will know what the burden is for them and how this impacts the city. Is that what you're saying? Yes. But the thing is, the sponsors don't want to know because they're going to do this. It's saving them hundreds of millions, maybe, to add these, to squeeze the juice out of the orange, all of it, and even the shell, even the, the crust, the peel, until there's nothing left. And then maybe even vomit it and do it again. Like, that's how it is. The, it's yeah. not... It's it's a cost cutting. So this this whole thing of exploratory endpoints is something mm -hmm. no one's discussing. And yeah. yeah, it's saving sponsors a lot of money. But when sites are complaining and sites are frustrated and when we say clinical trials are getting harder, this is one of the main culprits. And by the way, the patients suffer. Because I have a patient who has to come back for a screening visit for a simple study, well, what should be simple, 10 tubes of blood for screening, visit one, when they really wow. only need four. Wow. Well, yeah, I yeah. can I can definitely see myself in the situation saying, like, no, like, that's insane. Why would you need that? So, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, so I wonder, um, obviously, sites are not happy 
but the site's communication goes through the CRAs, right? So wouldn't they complain to the CRA and then the CRA wouldn't then, like, wouldn't they go back to the... I do. Yeah? So let me tell you how this works at the site level, yeah? right? And I'm, I'm unique because I'm a CRC that owns the site, so I can't fire yeah. myself, right? I'm not going to fire yeah. myself. Most CRCs, 99%, they will never escalate these issues. So they're just going to talk to their CRA and their CRA is going to tell them, hey, I know, I know how this study is. It's really tough. It's insane. Mm. I'm sorry. Like, it's insane for me, too. There's nothing we can do. The CRA is just a therapist at that point. Like, hey, let's see how we can fix your issues. They're not changing. They're not there to change anything systemically. That's not their role, nor does the CRA want to escalate it because then they're going to think, well, sponsor is going to think i don't i don't want to do this they're going to find someone else and there's plenty of people that are so eager to be cra's that they'll find someone mm-hmm. so this is the yeah. problem and yeah you can argue some of these exploratory endpoints are also justified in safety but to what extent i mean they take like a little bit of truth and they they run with it because it's an opportunity for them to see okay maybe we, maybe there's some data here that we can do another indication for this drug so coordinator, I have to deal with this. I I talk to my CRA about these things until mm-hmm. I realize that they're not going to do anything. So I've already yeah. jumped to the CTM and I'm mm-hmm. finding the CTM at the sponsor level and I'm complaining to them and I'm asking them what's the rationale and I've determined these are the conclusions that I've I've received and I've talked to colleagues who are other CTMs at other sponsors. Mm-hmm. They tell me the honest truth. Robert Goldman is one. This is what they're doing. They're doing exploratory endpoints. The studies don't have to be this difficult. Yeah. From the scientific point of view, maybe it makes a lot of sense. Not maybe, it makes a lot of sense because <laughs> with limited, but like less budget, you can actually get more data and then that will help you run your business more efficiently, I guess. Um, but I understand that there should be some, some sort of a limit how much you can push um, how much you can uh, save yourself, like the budget. And I wonder, at the end of the day, you think maybe you're saving some money by having just one trial and then uh, having these extra endpoints collected. But at the same time, if that prevents from the cl- clinical trial to be successful, aren't you actually losing money at the end of the day? They're looking at it as it's going to be successful um, and it's still cheaper, even if the study takes longer to enroll it's still cheaper than doing another study. Got it. That's interesting. Okay. But we started speaking about sites, actually. We started with the CRAs, but you, uh, you made it clear how important the, the role of the, of the site is. Um, I wonder, actually, two questions. First, um, everyone knows that when, when feasibility is done, the, one of the ways to interact with sites and, and, and get their, let's say, um, uh, availability for a particular clinical trial, they run a, a site survey, for example, site questionnaire. So during these questionnaires, uh, are usually sites being asked about these extra endpoints? Uh, or can you no. complain about, like, for example, you've seen that before and you're just making sure that you don't have this in your clinical trial? They'll give you a hint. Like, uh-huh, okay. like um, they'll ask you, does your site have capabilities to do this, 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 and that? And then okay. you just say yes or no to all those things. And you might wonder, okay, why are they asking yes? Okay, there's probably going to be an mm. eye exam. Why is there an eye exam needed for 
this indication. There are probably some safety issues, which in this case there are. There are safety issues. Um, okay, but then why are they asking? Like they may ask you regarding the labs. They don't ask you because the labs, you're just drawing tubes. So mm. everybody has that capability. If you're drawing like any basic CMP panel, you can draw tubes for specialty labs too. So you don't find out till later, usually right before the SIV, just in detail how complicated these labs are. Mm. So when I'm doing the survey in my head, I'm like, this is a normal study, you know, just five minutes to draw the blood and then 20 minutes to process them. When, when we're actually getting trained for the SIV, we're like, whoa, wait a minute. If this happens, then we have to draw this one. And then if this one, then we have to ship it to three different places. Oh, wow. Well, now it just became an hour and a half. But okay, I mean, we were already at SIV. We have to do it now. <laughs> That's the way it works. And so it's not, the details are not in those feasibility. You might get hints, but you're not seeing the full picture. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you find this topic relevant, you'll find it helpful to book a demo with our team on trialhub.com. Since 2019, we've supported more than 3,000 clinical trials with country, site, and patient feasibility. We'd love to show you how and help you get your trial right from the start. And now, back to my guests. Hmm. It doesn't happen also with diversity because, you know, diversity is a huge topic now. Uh, everyone expects that this will be mandatory. Actually, maybe it's, it is yeah. mandatory. Maybe there, there is no clear definition yet how it will work and what exactly FDA will require, but it is more or less mandatory now. So with diversity, do you see a similar picture like with these endpoints? My site is on the border of Arizona and Mexico. A lot of our population are Spanish-only speakers. Our first few patients are Spanish-only. We still do not have, despite the industry's push for diversity, and the reason they selected us is because at least half mm. of our patients will be Latino, Yeah, which is desperately needed because the FDA mandated it. Do you know, Maya, that we still do not have the Spanish-informed consent? How come? You started a trial? We have fancy technology for anything you can think of. We have air bills for four different places, customs forms. We have apps. We have things to remind us about everything that we don't even know about. And they want Latinos in the study. <laughs> and we're still waiting on Spanish informed consent. You know, what you're sh sharing now is exactly the reason why I started the podcast, because, you know, I, I love being at these conferences, uh, speaking with all sorts of leaders and uh, CEOs and, you know, innovators, disruptors, and so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, these everyday things remind us that there are, like, we have to start much, much earlier to think about the basics. If we are site focus, patient focus, whatever, what does this actually mean? And like you now gave me this example, if we really have, uh, if we really want to have diverse population joining clinical trials, then we should better do our homework to invite these people to make it easier for them to be a part of that. And I, I guess that e-consent or whatever consent in Spanish shouldn't be a big deal, right? 
So in this case, why is it that you don't have the, the, the consent? Do you think it's, it's more like a process type of thing? It's because there are multiple stakeholders um, involved with that and nobody knows what, yeah. who owns what? No money in it. They, no they money. Have, oh, where's the money? All these disruptors. This is why I'm so jaded. Like all these disruptors, all these people with their hands out. Hey, here's your problem. They invent a problem doesn't even exist. I have your solution here. Mm. CRO, you know, give me, give me to translate and form consent is doesn't require anything disruptive. Nothing. Yeah, of course. But there's no money there either. Like, so it's just something they put like, oh, well. We don't have it yet. The IRB didn't have a chance to review it. Our certified translator is not, didn't do it yet. What do you mean Spanish is spoken in like almost 40% of the United States household? Mm. You cannot find a certified, I understand if it's some obscure language, but Spanish, you can't find a certified translator to get it on time. You know what the sponsor told us? You, we know you have Spanish-speaking site. Just translate the English consent into Spanish. That's it. That's what they tell us. And document it. So yeah. all these ideas and tech boils down to if I can't make money on it fast, eh, the coordinator can deal with it. Let's just give more to them. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. So is there any way we can improve um, and kind of like make sure that uh, what sites are experiencing and what patients are experiencing can go to the like the decision maker maker's ears. Like how can we shorten that distance and yeah, make it work? I think there's so much waste between the sites who treat the patients mm -hmm. and the sponsors who pay for everything. About 50% of the money for a, like the budget is wasted in the middlemen and the middlemen are business. They're going to look at high margin, you know, translating a consent is not high margin. That's low margin task. Mm -hmm. That's, it's not exciting. It's not going to be talked about at scope, you know, at scope, they're going to talk about ECOA. Oh, let's enhance the patient journey with more apps because those yeah. cost money and, CROs love it and CROs want to pay for it because they, they're going to impress the sponsors that they have technology. But at yeah. the end of the day, it's not more technology that we need. Yeah, I agree. Actually, I have one, one hypothesis that if we relocate the budget that we are bringing to enrollment assistance, the guys that help the investigator identify their eligible patients, for example, and relocate this budget to coordinators, I think we'll have better patient recruitment because um, um, I agree with you. Uh, if sites are engaged and happy and willing to to collaborate uh, on this clinical trial, and then if we provide meaningful clinical trials to patients and um, meaningful, I mean, uh, clinical trials that give them some value in one way or another, but also take into consideration what's normal and what's not normal, for example, we will be successful in patient recruitment one way or another. But if we just try to fix things with technology, what we are doing, not just in clinical research, not just in this industry, but all industries, just put some more technology, 
that's not going to happen. Like That's not the only solution. I'm not saying that we don't need technology. Don't get me wrong. We do. Technology is great. I'm a huge fan. We use our site uses everything. E-source, E-reg, E-consent. We use all of this stuff. The only old fashioned is we give cash to patients. But everything else is highest tech because it works. It does work. But at the end, of it, we don't need more. Like we don't need another app. For a patient to log their diary we, when we don't have in Spanish informed consents and we don't need uh, all these tools that they think are going to enhance the patient experience when really it's just to get more data for the sponsors. Because when a sponsor pays for something to a vendor, they're asking basically what do we get out of this money? And so it usually means more data. Yeah. And that comes at the expense of the patient having to be more burdened, actually, not less. Mm, yeah, I understand. Well, Dan, uh, Dan if there is um, one thing that you would like to change in the way clinical trials are being planned, uh, what would that be? Well, I don't know, because it's easy for me at the site level to say, hey, you know, let's get less exploratory endpoints. It's getting ridiculous. But if I were at the sponsor level, it makes sense. It's like, yeah, why not? So I mm. think sites, myself included, by the way, like this study I chose that I'm complaining about, I chose it, right? And I didn't wow. realize it was that difficult when I chose it, but I chose it. You know why? Because we actually have a huge amount of patients in our community that would really? benefit from this study. That's why I chose it. I didn't choose it wow. for money. Of course, I assumed it's going to be fair budget, and it is. It's actually a good paying study. So I'm not complaining about that. I'm not complaining about the budget. But I think the, the, the fact that sites are being ignored, especially coordinators. Coordinators are basically the bottom of the totem pole. And they're the ones doing, them and the CRA are doing everything. Like PI just yeah. for safety and oversight. Yeah. But the CRA and the CRC, they're the workhorses and they don't have any voice. And I don't know how you give them a voice that's something that's be, that's meaningful. I could see them giving a voice to show that they're giving them a voice, but not actually do anything. Um, so I, I honestly don't know how I would change it because I understand the incentives from the sponsor. And then I understand the incentive from the site is just, well, we have to learn how to deal with these difficult studies because they still pay well and our patients could benefit from it. So yeah. I'm not sure if I would change anything. Yeah, Honestly. well, Dan, um, you're right. And at the same time, I know of many uh, colleagues of yours who just decided to quit and never do a clinical trial anymore. So I think that we just can't yeah, um, agree that that's, that's the status quo and that's it. We, we shouldn't change because we know the metrics. I don't know it on top of my head. The percentage of sites that do only one clinical trial and then they quit, it's huge. And um, in, in the States, for example, you have a lot of sites that are professional sites. But in Europe, for example, there it's not that many. So that you, that means that you're literally compete, uh, competing with the general practices of these doctors. Why would they do a clinical trial where, where they're challenged and they don't they don't feel hurt, for example? So I think we should do something about it. I don't have the solution, but I hope that we'll find a solution one way or, or another. Nan, thank you so much for for accepting my invitation. Thank you, Maya. I mean, this is great. We got to do more. 
<laughs> yes, we will definitely. There are a lot of questions, but I'm pretty sure that uh, even now, uh, people who listen to that uh, will get some, let's say, insights. Uh, I definitely learned something new. Uh, so thank you very much. One thing that I love about you is that you're always transparent and speaking loud. Many people don't and they just quit. Uh, and that's why we're here where we are. But I hope that yeah. it will change. So thank you so much for doing what you're doing, Dan. And thank you thank so you, much Maya. for your time again today. Thank you as well. Hope you enjoyed listening to Trials with Maya Z. If you're interested to hear more about how clinical trials can serve patients globally, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.